Take your copy of God's Word and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll look, Lord willing, this morning at the first six verses of this chapter. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. So we are in this final section of Paul's second canonical letter to the church in Corinth, a section in which the apostle is attempting to overthrow some false teachers who had made their way into the church there. These men, these false teachers, these intruders were seeking to undermine Paul's influence in the church at Corinth by claiming that they had a greater authority than the Apostle Paul and they had a higher knowledge than the Apostle Paul. This chapter, chapter 11, actually begins what is sometimes referred to as the fool's speech. You can see why right there in the very first verse. I, would, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Paul repetitively refers to himself as a fool throughout this section. But really the actual speaking of the fool speech does not begin until verse 16. The first 15 verses in this chapter are Paul's laying the foundation for the upcoming boasting that he plans to do. You see, the Apostle Paul is about to partake in something he thoroughly loathes self-commendation. He does not like bragging on Paul. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. It's been suggested that verses 1 through 6 that we're going to look at this morning form sort of the thesis statement for the entire fool's speech. As Paul declares that the intruders are doing two things. They are distorting the gospel, which is key, and they are misrepresenting God's man, the Apostle Paul specifically. Look, Paul is not going to pull any punches in this section and the sections to come. If you are thinking that Paul should be more soft and that Paul should have, perhaps have sugar-coated this more, You'll have to take that up with the Holy Spirit who inspired this letter. The language before us is very direct because the subject matter is deathly serious. The name of the sermon this morning is Godly Jealousy. 
And in this text, Paul explains his heart, the reason why he is so willing to do that which he loathes, why he is so willing to commend himself even though he has such a normal disdain for that practice. So he begins here and he says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. Now back in chapter 10, verse 12, remember what the Apostle Paul wrote. Look back there. It says this. Paul said, Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, specifically talking about the false teachers there. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. And then we saw the last time we were in this chapter, or in this book, in the 17th verse, Paul went on to write, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. And yet, though Paul has no desire to defend Paul, not for that reason alone at least, he now has to embark on what he calls here in this verse a little foolishness. In other words, he must boast of himself, not for his benefit but for theirs. And so he asked them to bear with him. Look, Paul's hand has been forced by the false teachers and by the reception of the false teachers in the church at Corinth. His ministry, Paul's ministry, was not focused on validating himself and invalidating everybody else. That was not the focus of Paul's ministry. But for the faith of these saints, the spiritual health of these saints, he was going to set out and defend his apostolic office. Paul had the truth. Knowledge given to him directly from Jesus himself. Directly from the head of the church. These false teachers, however, merely claimed to have the truth. They claimed to have some type of special authority and they claimed to have had more knowledge than the Apostle Paul himself. And what they ended up doing, according to this text, is that they actually promoted a false gospel. You see the predicament Paul is in. He loathes self-boasting, but for their sake he has to do it. That's why he says, put up with me. Notice that last phrase, by the way. Do bear with me, which the ESV here renders as an imperative, a command. Bear with me. But (coughs) it can be rendered as a declarative statement. In other words, it can say this. This is the way the LSB renders this. But indeed, you are bearing with me. In other words, it's a statement, not a command. Paul may essentially be saying something like this. Bear with me a minute as a fool. But of course the false teachers have already convinced you that I am a fool. So that should not be very difficult for you to do. That may be exactly what Paul is saying. And if so, it is dripping with irony. Something Paul is not afraid to employ. Especially 
with this particular church. He speaks in this type of irony to them on a regular basis. You already reign as kings, he tells them in one place. But of course, he did not mean that. That's how they felt. And so Paul ironically tells them here, maybe you're already with bearing with me as a fool. Just continue what you've been doing. Either way, Paul then explains precisely why he is willing to boast even though he doesn't want to. He says in verse 2, For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. D.A. Carson writes this, quote, Most human jealousy is a vice. Divine jealousy, by contrast, is a virtue. End quote. In other words, the jealousy driving Paul here, rather than the feeling normally associated with the desires of the flesh, the type of jealousy we genuinely or generally have, this is a spirit-produced jealousy. The Greek is theao of God, zelo, zeal, zeal of God, jealousy of God. Look, God is said to be jealous. He is a jealous God. And specifically, He is jealous for His holy name. God's name speaks of God's reputation. And so God being jealous for His name then is a good thing because God is a good God. In that vein, Paul is jealous with the jealousy of God for these saints here in Corinth. Their faith in the one true God was under attack. And now Paul is willing to pick up his sword and fight for them on their behalf. That's, that's what he means when he says he has this divine jealousy. And then he employs a metaphor to describe, listen, his actions, not theirs. He employs a metaphor to describe his actions relative to them. Metaphors, word pictures are not uncommon for Paul, not even in his letters to the saints in Corinth. You may recall back in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul uses the picture of the church as a building when he says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. So he uses the the metaphor there of, of a building. I'm certain you remember how he used the picture of a house to young Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul likens the church there to a house, a household, and even perhaps a family. In Acts 20, in speaking to the Ephesian elders, Paul likens the church to a flock, a flock of sheep. And of course, he borrowed that illustration from our Lord. That's how Jesus often referred to His little church that He started there during His personal ministry. This little flock, He sometimes said. Even Peter employs that same metaphor in 1 Peter chapter 5. Look, 
The Bible is not short on metaphors in describing different functions of the church. and that, That's why all of these things are given to us. Here though, Paul latches on to the metaphor of betrothal because he has something specific he wants to say about his actions here. That's his point. He's not defending them. He is defending his actions. I assume most of you are at least a little bit familiar with betrothal. It was similar to our modern engagement, but it was far more official. The couple was considered married when they were betrothed. Even though no physical relationship would take place for perhaps a year later when the the actual marriage occurred, the actual wedding itself. And if any type of indecent behavior took place during the betrothal period, the penalty was the same as if the couple were married and carried a need for divorce at that point. If the betrothal was severed, even the family of the bride would still owe the groom's family the bridal price at that point. You don't just get to give the ring back and take all the gifts back to Walmart. That's not what betrothal was. Here's Paul's part in the picture. Here's here's why he uses this. Paul pictures himself as the father of the bride. And it is his duty to keep her chaste until the official union. That is why he brings this up. Do not romanticize this. You will make too much of it. Paul is saying he is playing the part of the, the, the bride's father. Paul's not making some emotional plea here. He is making a theological argument. Listen, this is not about the Corinthian church being faithful enough to gain entrance into some higher life in heaven one day. That is not what he's saying. That's not even anywhere in this. Paul is concerned that they are going to be unfaithful to Christ before he returns and that they may have already been unfaithful to Christ and because of that, some of these people may not even be saved at all. In fact, in chapter 13, verse 5, Paul will warn them, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. You see, Paul has major concerns. He tells them, test yourselves. Or you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Guys, look, they were entertaining a false gospel. And it was deathly concerning to the Apostle Paul. And so as a good father of the bride, He is stepping in to warn them of this terrible mistake, this indecent behavior. There's far more at stake here than a mere bridal price, a dowry. No, no. Eternal life is Paul's concern for these people. This will become crystal clear here in just a moment. Verse 3, Paul says, But, look, I, I want to present you to Christ, but... I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 
This is the first of two times that Eve is mentioned in the New Testament, both by Paul, both with a purpose, neither very glorious. The other time is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, where Paul talks about how she was deceived, but there it is about church leadership. That is not the point he's making here. Paul's concern here is that the church in Corinth has been perhaps deceived and cunned the way that Eve was deceived and cunned in the garden by the serpent. Let's rehearse the Genesis account really quickly. I don't want to take for granted that everybody knows their stuff, though you should. God commanded the very first couple, Adam and Eve, you may surely eat of the tree of the garden, eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You know the story. Satan, in the form of a snake, came to Eve and questioned God's word. Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Eve reiterated the command that they were not allowed to eat of every tree of the garden. She knew the penalty. (coughs) Lest you die, she said. To which Satan replied deceptively, You will not surely die. But there was more. That's not all Satan said. And I think the rest of what he says gets to the heart of what Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians. Satan went on to play for Eve's ego. We might say he deceived her through flattery. Here's what Satan went on to tell Eve, Genesis 3, 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And he had her right there. That's what Paul is concerned has happened at Corinth right there. He believes these false teachers have crept into the church and have deceived them through the very same techniques that Satan used back in the Garden of Eden when he tempted Eve. Guys, if you want to deceive a church, get them to buy into the idea that they are somehow the cream of the crop, better than the rest, the elect of the elect, and you have them right where you want them. I'm sure you'll recall Paul's prophetic warning to young Timothy, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, listen to this, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Tell them what they want to hear. What will be the result? They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Listen, we as humans love listening to somebody tell us how great we are. All of us like that. Listen to this compelling quote by D.A. Carson. There was like three paragraphs I'd like to quote by him. I've narrowed it down to two sentences. Here's what he says, quote, Christians are especially opened to the kind of cunning deceit that combines the language of faith and religion with the content of self-interest and flattery. 
We like to be told how special we are, how wise, how blessed, especially if as a consequence others are greatly diminished. End quote. Amen. And there are scores of groups out there willing to tell you that you are better in this way or that way if it draws you in and adds money to their coffers. Paul is concerned. This was happening at Corinth, and it is happening today across all major denominations to some degree. But here's the tragedy. Such Self-interest and flattery in religion usually has one major flaw. It's right here in our text. It leads men and women astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You cannot preach yourself and Jesus. That's why Paul wrote back in chapter 4, for what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. These false teachers had shown up claiming a greater authority than Paul, a higher knowledge than Paul, and no doubt they had made grand promises to these saints here in Corinth. And the result was that some of these people were being pulled away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And if they were not soon reeled back in, it may simply expose that they were never in the faith to begin with. And so Paul is concerned. <coughs> Guys, look, this is, this is deathly serious. And this is Paul's major concern with these saints, and it should be our concern today. He says in verse 4, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit than the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Look, we don't know all the ins and outs of the doctrinal deviations by these deceivers that had made their way into this church. We don't know. Sometimes we do. We know a lot more about the... Those in Galatia, for instance, we'll talk about that here in just a moment. But we don't know everything that these people taught. Paul doesn't bring all of that out for us in this section. But this language does sound very familiar to Galatians 1, where Paul writes to a group of churches, not just one church, but a group of churches that had similarly fallen under the attack of false teachers. And here's what Paul says... I am astonished, first century, churches that Paul founded, I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Guys, listen. We can give a lot of liberty to one another over various issues of doctrine. And we can give a lot of liberty to those who we choose to fellowship with. 
We do that. I hope we do. But when a false gospel is being preached, Paul's instruction is clear. Let him be accursed. Now those false teachers that had weaseled their way into the churches in Galatia were trying to force Gentiles to be circumcised and live under the old covenant law. By the way, I preached through Galatians a few years ago, I think 2020. All those sermons are available online. If you've not worked through them, please do. That's a very important book for us today. Anyway, (coughs) Judaizers trying to force Gentiles to live according to the old covenant law was a widespread problem in first century Christianity. And that may well be what was going on here in Corinth. We just don't know. We do know that these intruders were certainly proud of their Jewish heritage. Look down at verse 22. Paul says, are they Hebrews? He essentially says, big deal. So am I. Are they Israelites? Big deal. So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. You see, they they obviously saw their Jewish heritage as something to boast about. But there's more here than an attempt to make practicing Jews out of Gentiles. These men were able to play on the oratorical expectations of the Greek listener. They were great speakers and they were great showmen. Paul has already talked about that in this book. Somehow, this is just so crazy to me, but somehow these men, despite their corruption of the pure gospel, they had touted themselves as something greater than Paul. And the church, to some degree, had listened. Men of of greater authority and greater knowledge than Paul. So while the issue may have been forcing Gentiles to live under the old covenant law, there's more going on here than just that. There is this higher triumphalism when they think they have arrived somewhere other believers have not. Here's what we know for dead level certain. Paul writes it. They were preaching another Jesus than the one Paul proclaimed a different gospel from the one they had initially received through Paul and his missionary team. Paul reiterates in chapter 13 the Jesus he preached. Verse 4, For He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. That's Paul's Jesus. But that was not the Jesus that the false teachers were teaching. It was another Jesus. Listen, if our primary focus on Jesus is something other than His mediatorial work for us, paying for our sins in our place on the cross, we are missing the boat. In other words, if it's all about healing and health, that's not the Jesus Paul says he preached. If the supposed gospel is all about my prosperity here on earth, where Jesus is nothing more than a genie in a bottle... That's not the gospel Paul preached. If the main thing we focus on is how Jesus somehow makes us better than everybody else, again, not the gospel Paul 
preach. By the way, that seems to have been the issue here with these teachers that had made their way into the church in Corinth. Whatever specifics they preached, though, they preached a false gospel. That much we know. And Paul says that the Corinthians put up with it readily enough. Guys, we cannot overlook and or accept unorthodox notions of Jesus. Period. Souls are in danger, eternal danger. But these false teachers, they offered these people something. We don't know what. Paul doesn't explain that. But something made them look like they could just overlook the spurious doctrines that they were preaching. Paul says, no. That's a false gospel, and it is eternally deadly. We need to be better than that. And then Paul, he shifts in verse 5. He shifts into a defensive posture. He's, He's been on the attack. Now he shifts into a defensive posture. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. You hear the irony with which our apostle here speaks. They saw themselves as Paul's superior. Super apostles, apparently. We don't know if Paul coined that term or if they coined it of themselves. It doesn't matter. It aptly describes what they were trying to do in Corinth. And sadly, some in the church apparently saw them that way. But Paul knows better. He knows because he received his calling directly from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And listen, Paul is not giving them equality. It's not as though Paul is saying, look, I'm at least as good as they are. That's not what he's, that's not what he's saying. He's not giving them equality to him. Paul knows he's better than them in the sense that God has given him the truth and they don't have it. Paul, though, is simply defending himself against their bogus charges. He's not inferior to those super apostles. In fact, they were claiming to be apostles, and they weren't apostles. Paul, however, was absolutely a Jesus-called, Jesus-commissioned apostle with authority that these men knew nothing about. They were preaching, we're number one. Paul was preaching, Jesus is Lord. That's the difference. Then he defends himself against one more charge in this text this morning. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. I, I, I don't think Paul is suggesting he was not a good teacher or even a skilled speaker. I have no doubts that Paul was both of those things. But these professional rhetoricians had certain tactics when they preached. They had certain accepted methods that were considered skills. And Paul had no desire whatsoever to employ those. Gary Miller put it this way, quote, Paul refuses to indulge in the showboating that marked the traveling philosophy circus. End quote. That is precisely what Paul is saying. I'm not a showboater. I'm just a preacher of the truth. Listen, I've heard 
preachers, and this drives me bonkers, who step into the pulpit and just become another man. Their voice transforms into something completely other than what their voice normally is, into this, this, this preacher voice kind of thing, from stressing the final consonant on a word, duh, to hooping and hacking and snorting, pulpiteering, it has been called. Listen, it takes effort to cultivate all of that. You don't just get up in a pulpit and boom, you've got the preacher voice. <laughs> Paul had no desire for those kind of tactics. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. He wasn't about that stuff. That stuff, that's just rhetorical tricks. That doesn't make a man right in what he's saying. These men, these false teachers, were using those type of tactics. And they were convincing people. And Paul says, I'm not going to use them because I've got something greater than that. We've got the truth. Now this doesn't mean that preachers should not work hard. To be clear. To be understandable. I work hard at that. Jacob works hard at that. Brian works hard at that. Blake works hard at that. Your other teachers do. Look, if I'm going to you know, take 35 minutes of your time or more, I hope it's understandable, right? I, I don't want you to leave thinking, I have no idea what he talked about for, for the entire time. That would be terrible. Preachers should work hard at being clear and accurate and understandable, but tactics should be checked at the door. Now, Paul refused to use their rhetorical devices. He had something they did not have, something far more important than voice inflections. Paul had knowledge. True, biblical, Christ-centered knowledge. And this had been made plain to them. They knew it. Paul was with them for over a year and a half at the very beginning. They knew that Paul knew his stuff. But these flattering false teachers were so subtle, so cunning, and they had at least deceived some of the saints there. Well, I think the applications from this passage are rather clear. But let's see if we can make a few points anyway. Listen, let, let us beware. We are not immune from being tricked. We're not immune from being tricked. I told you the last time we were here that I, I've been to rah-rah Bible conferences where the subject of the conference was essentially how great our tribe is and how unauthorized everybody else's tribe is. Guys, that's just ear-tickling. It lulls a church or a group of churches to sleep. I've seen it. There's no incentive to grow if you're already at the top. But we aren't at the top. Jesus is at the top. And we're working towards that. We need to be putting in great work. There's no incentive to learn if you believe you know it already. Listen, understand, once a congregation is convinced that they are elite 
and everyone else is the problem, that nobody else's knowledge can compare to theirs, that congregation is primed for a false teacher to just walk right through the front door. There is a gross lack of discernment in today's Christian world, and Baptist churches are not exempt from that. We here are one church, one local, visible, gathered church. And we must keep one finger on the text of Scripture every time we listen to a man preach to us. There is one standard God has given to us, and it's the Word of God. It was that standard, God's Word, that Satan made Eve doubt in Genesis. And he played to her ego, and he flattered her, and she took her eyes off God's clear command to do that which she thought would benefit herself. Guys, if it worked then, it still works now. Probably even better in this self-absorbed society that we live in today. The content of a pastor's sermon is far more important than his appearance or his delivery. I've told you before, I'll take a biblical sermon preached by a guy in jeans and a t-shirt over a silver-tongued demon in a three-piece suit any day of the week. Listen, we just went through the Christmas holiday, and I think most of us figured out if we have young children that children are often more interested in the wrapping around a box than they are what's inside. That's not very smart. But it should only be a child that is far more enamored with the box than what's inside the box. But as a society, we are just far too impressed with showmanship And because of that, we are by and large spiritual babies. Combine that with an unhealthy desire to want to be made feel good and a guy like Joel Osteen and his ilk rise to the top. Look, I hope we realize that not every person mentioning the name of Jesus is preaching the gospel. I don't know how much clearer this text we've looked at this morning can be. These men were preaching Jesus. They just weren't preaching the biblical Jesus. Kent Hughes had a really powerful quote. Listen to what he says. Quote, The wolves in the church that devour sheep do not howl and bare their teeth. They come in sheep's clothing, smiling, reciting Scripture, full of understanding, promising something more than Christ. End quote. Well, here Christ is all we have to offer. And He's enough. While I'm on the subject, let me mention this. One of the primary duties of church leaders, church elders, is to guard what's being taught here. That just makes sense as you picture a shepherd taking care of sheep, right? And look, we as the eldership, Todd, Brian, Jacob, even Blake, as we pull on his ear, we will stand before God one day for what is preached here by us and by others who come this way. We will have to give an account. 
That just makes sense when you consider that a congregation has members, or at least should, if it's healthy, have members from young, immature, and unlearned to hopefully more experienced and more mature and more learned, growing at least. The eldership, though, is to be leading the church faithfully and biblically, so that includes what is taught here in this pulpit as a primary function. But I pray that we do that with a divine jealousy for you like Paul had for these people. (coughs) All right, let me close with this. My cough has done okay. These intruders in Corinth (coughs) were false apostles. They claimed to be on par with the twelve. They claimed to be something more than Paul. But they were liars. Guys, listen. The apostles are the foundation of the church. According to Ephesians 2.20, in the inspired Word of God. There's no way to deny that. But the, the foundation is not continuing to be laid each successive generation. Like that, that's not even how you build a house. That, that, does, that doesn't make any sense. Well, let, me, let me say it plainly. There are no apostles today. But there are a lot of men and women in our day claiming apostolic authority. Now, I do not merely mean those who take the title of apostle, though those are obvious frauds. Men in pulpits often make apostolic claims without even realizing they're making those type of claims. And unsuspecting congregations become prey for such men because they listen to those claims and don't realize that they're apostolic claims. Listen, when a man gets in a pulpit and says, God gave me this message this week for you, that is an apostolic claim. He's making the claim that God has revealed to him something outside of this book. God doesn't do that today. He's not doing that today. I don't care if he claims the message came through a dream, through some sort of internal impression, or an audible voice. It doesn't matter. It's an apostolic claim. As subtle as it is, it has no biblical basis whatsoever. In other words, God never tells His people... I will raise up men for you and I will drop sermons in their head every week that you need to hear. That's not anywhere at all in the Bible. And congregations, week after week after week after week, year after year, listen to that and believe it. Wouldn't it be great if we knew how God was going to speak to us? We do. 2 Timothy 3, all scriptures breathed out by God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. If God has given us that which makes us complete, why do we need something else? I know you've heard that passage quoted a number of times, but there's a reason we often quote it. Our generation... Simply is not very satisfied with Scripture. It's not sufficient to us. We want more. 
We are enamored so easily. Just like Eve, just like the saints in Corinth by these false teachers who came in claiming a greater authority and a higher knowledge than Paul. We are enamored just as easily as them. Nevertheless, Scripture remains the way that God matures His people. And so, just after that text, Paul charges young Timothy like this. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the Word, Timothy. You know, you know what he doesn't tell Timothy? Stay up Saturday night until God drops a sermon in your head and then preach that. He doesn't tell him that. He's already told him to study, to be diligent, to make sure he knows the Word. And here he tells him, preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching according to the Word. That's what he means. Guys, listen to me. This is the charge for every pastor in every generation. Right here. Preach the Word. Every preacher that steps behind the pulpit... Preach the Word. God does not expect him to have some type of special insight, a sermon tailored just for the congregation that he has dropped in his head. Listen, there's no biblical justification for that. Men take advantage of naive congregations by that type of language. The message of Jesus through the apostles is found in the Word. And it remains the foundation of healthy churches today. Well, what is the logical outcome then if we don't know where to, know where to hear what God has said and we don't hear what God has said from the men God has gifted to us? What happens? We're not left to wonder that either. The very next verse is the one I quoted earlier, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. When the Word is not enough, they get in men to tell them just what they want to hear, something other than the text of Scripture, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I think that's been proven true in churches all across the denominational spectrum today. That was the root problem in Corinth right there. And it will be the root problem at Sovereign Grace Baptist if we let our guard down. We need to have a high view of Scripture. Stand with me, if you will.